0: Open your Bible to Joshua chapter 24 today. Joshua chapter 24. Now as we continue this series, and I will try as we go to bring in some things as far as bringing us up to speed in this. The danger of the teaching of the perseverance of the saints. We begin a little subsection today. It'll be a couple of weeks long at least on this. This is so important. I, I wish I could cover this in one Sunday, but it is too incredibly important of an issue to quickly go over it. I want us to be thinking, dear friend, I want you to think today of what we're covering. I want you to think it through. I don't want you to blindly simply believe something because it's what you've always heard your whole Christian life. What I have to share today is not new. It's in the Bible. It's the eternal word of God. And yet it's been missed by so many. As I said at the beginning of the series, there is an elephant in the room. And that elephant, no one wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to face up to it. And uh, we will sometimes, because we don't want to address it, we will say things that make absolutely no sense if you think as a person. But yet people keep saying it, people keep believing it, and unfortunately preachers keep preaching it. Is our eternal salvation based on God? preserving us, or is it based on us being faithful for the rest of our lives and therefore getting us to heaven? In other words, do we go to heaven based on what Jesus did on the cross and that alone, period, through faith alone in Christ alone and what he did on the cross alone? Is that enough to get you to heaven? Jesus said it was, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Now people say, well, that's true, but you also have to persevere. You also have to stay faithful. That's what Calvinism teaches, all right? That's not what the Bible says. Or you'll have some say, well, no, you don't also have to live for the Lord, but if you don't live for the Lord, it's obvious you never have it. Well, that's what Calvinism is also. That defines the perseverance of the saints. Okay, are we saved by the preservation of the Savior? Or are we saved by the perseverance of the saints? Do we look to the finished work of Christ on Calvary as our way to heaven and our assurance of salvation? When Jesus said it was finished, it should be enough. Or do we say, no, you know what? I'm going to look to myself and I'm going to look at myself and I'm going to watch myself every single day. And if if I have a day when I'm struggling with the things of my flesh or sin and so forth, Uh, Or if I mess up, I'm going to go into a a mode of fear and panic wondering if I was ever saved to begin with or am I going to say, no, you know what? I'm still a sinner. I still fail. I'm glad that it's not based on how I live, but it's based on what Christ has done for me. This is not a small issue because it all goes back to whether Christ's work was sufficient to get me to heaven no matter what or whether I have to be faithful to make it. The danger of the teaching of perseverance. We've identified the problem of having a faulty view of salvation already. We've defined the false doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that you must be faithful to the end of your life to either make it or prove that you had it, which in essence ends up being exactly the same, even though it's denied by many. Now, why would we spend so much time on this issue? I mean, after all, this series that we're doing, this is the ninth week on this. Well, why would we spend so much time? Because of the dangers it brings with it, that's why. I want you to look with me at a a verse that you may have up somewhere in your house, as I mentioned earlier, Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It's something that we as believers should be committed to absolutely. You might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't get it. You say salvation's a free gift. It is, that's what the Bible says. Have you read Romans 5 lately? It says it, it's a free gift over and over. So do you believe God or not? Well, you say it's a free gift. Yes, that's because that's what God says and I agree with him. You mean now you trust Christ as Savior and you're saved no matter what? Yes, no matter what. Well, how can that be? That doesn't seem fair. You're right, it's not fair. It's a matter of something the Bible calls Grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is God's undeserved mercy. We don't deserve it. We cannot merit it. We don't deserve it. Listen, there's not a person in this room that deserves going to heaven. Not a one. We are sinners. We were sinners before we believed. And once we're saved, we're sinners. Now, does God want us to live a different life once we're saved? Yes, he does. But that does not have a bearing on whether we'll go to heaven or not. Because that's a gift. The wages of sin is death, yes. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friend, gifts are free. When you trust in Jesus Christ, He saves you. Now, once we're saved, should we serve the Lord as believers? Yes, we should. Joshua 24, makes it clear. Verse 15, he says, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. That is an incredibly important phrase right there. Choose... Choose, choose. We're not talking about cows that chew. What what does that cow do? He chews. No, this is a different kind of choose. This is make a choice, okay? Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, by the way, that's the God of the Amorites, by the way, that's a bad choice, in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says, choose. Are you going to serve a false God or are you going to serve the one true God? You ought to serve the one true God. And he says, that's who we're going to serve. Now you notice that's a choice to be made. He didn't say, well, you know, if you're really a believer, you're automatically going to serve the Lord. Now I want you to know during the message today, I don't have short term memory loss. I'm going to be repeating myself over and over again for a reason to emphasize certain truths because I want us to get it. Okay? One of my great Bible teachers that I had as a professor when I was in Bible college, Dr. Mark G. Camber, and he was kind of like our resident theologian. He said this repetition is theological mucilage, glue, repetition, 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 repetition. Let's go and let's look at some points. Number one, the false teaching of perseverance tries to deny the fact that man has the ability to choose. This is at the foundation of this issue. And friends, if we will embrace what God says about this issue, it will take care of all the rest. The false teaching of perseverance tries to deny the fact that man has the ability to choose. This is a fundamental problem. And this idea of choice or thinking that man does not have the ability to choose the direction of his life is rooted in Calvinism, and Calvinism is a false teaching. The fact that man has the ability to choose can be seen not only in the Bible, but also in every aspect of life around us. God created us with the ability to choose. He created us that way. I'll give you an example. Now, now, you know, it's amazing to me that some people would deny that. Really, really hardcore Calvinists believe that every single thing that is done in the world is foreordained of God. Every single thing. You mean just the big, no, every single thing, all right? The late Dr. Curtis Hudson used to tell a a story about a, a church in this issue of do we have choice or not? Well, this one church was kind of split. There were Calvinists and there were people who didn't believe in, in Calvinism in the same church. And it was a Sunday. And you know, it's in the South. And you know, in the South, what they do when they eat, they eat fried chicken. And, uh, so they were at a church picnic and afterwards. And, and the Calvinist, you know, he was very waxing spiritual about it. And there they were and they were licking their chops and they were looking, they were getting ready and they prayed. And that Calvinist, before he picked up that chicken leg, he says it was foreordained before the foundations of the world that I should eat this piece of chicken. And somebody who didn't believe in Calvinism grabbed it out of his hand and said, "Not this time, it's not." And he just <laughs> <laughs> split the church. Split the church, friends. Can I tell you, Calvinism is splitting churches today, big time. Take a menu for an example. You you wonder, you question whether we have the ability to choose. Take a menu. Let's say afterwards today you decide to, uh, let's say you get brave and you decide to go to McDonald's for lunch. And so you, you go to McDonald's and, and you go in there and you walk in McDonald's and the first thing you see, if you look up a little bit, there's a menu. Why would there be a menu? Well, that way you can choose what you want to eat that day. Right? Isn't that just... Any restaurant you go to has a menu, pretty much most of them. You can choose. Every person makes choices in life. Whether you're a saved person or a lost person, you make choices in life. That is an important point. Listen whether you're a lost person or a saved person, you make choices. In life, we choose when we will get up in the morning. We choose when we're going to go to bed at night. We choose what clothes to buy. We choose what clothes we will wear on any given day. I did that this morning. Where we will vacation, where we're going to work, how we'll spend our time. We decide things. We make choices and then we we are deciding what we are going to do. What is that? That is the ability to make choices. We even make moral choices. You know, some people say, well, yeah, we have the ability to choose, but when it comes to the things of God, or when it comes to the things of God, okay, well, that's when it changes. That's when God starts making the choices for you. Well, let me tell you, friend, God has given us his ideals and his truths, but he doesn't make the choices for us. Joshua made it very clear. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Why would he say that if it wasn't possible for man to make the choice? We even make moral choices concerning whether we will do good or evil. Let me give you an example of that. The tragedies that we have seen in the last 20 years around the globe, whether it's hurricanes or hurricane relief, whether it's tornadoes, fires, tsunamis, these natural tragedies and disasters that take place. Many, many people, the vast majority of them, by the way, who are spiritually lost in sin. Do we get that? What do they do? They make the choice to help their fellow man. They come literally from all over the world to help when there are these major disasters. And the vast majority of them are not safe people, and yet they're making a good moral choice. Now, I don't know what Calvinism does with that, because they say, well, man is totally depraved. Uh, What do you mean by that? They define that as he can't make a, a right spiritual choice for himself. Okay? That is completely false. He can. Most of these people who help in these situations are spiritually dead in sin. Here's the point. If we can make moral choices concerning good and bad before we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, then why and how does that ability go away after we trust Jesus Christ as Savior? And where in the Bible does it say once you're saved, you don't make wrong choices anymore. Or, so I'm not guilty of mischaracterizing people who believe that, they'll say, well, you don't make a lot of wrong choices. You can make some and be saved, but you can't make a lot of them. Let me ask you something, friend. If God was in control of all this, don't you think he would have his children not make any wrong choices? Why would he say, well... You're not going to make, if you're saved, if you're one of mine, you won't make wrong choices. Well, not too many of them anyway. Listen, if he's in control and you're automatically going to serve the Lord, then why wouldn't you completely 100% serve the Lord once you're saved? Is God the author of sin? Some Calvinists, by the way, would say yes. Did you know that? Not all, but some of them would. If we can make moral choices concerning good and bad before we're saved, then why and how does the ability go away after we trust Christ, resulting in our automatic faithfulness and perseverance in the faith. Automatic. Your will, did it go away? Do you no longer have the ability to choose? Where in the Bible does it say it? And where does it say if and when it happens? Now listen, listen, certainly, The Lord starts working in our lives by many means once we're saved to bring us to maturity. There's no denying it. There's no question about it. He is working. Once you've trusted Christ, God is working in your life. But does he automatically override your will or does he leave it up to you whether you are going to yield to him and obey him or not? This is not a small issue. This is a huge issue. Issue, Because if you believe he's going to automatically override your will, well, again, how much is he going to do that? Is he only going to do it sometimes? Wouldn't it make sense if God wants us to live holy lives and be holy as he is holy, that he would override our will 100%? Why just some? Occasionally. Now you can hear the critics. Oh, but you can't tell me. Well, number one, yes, I can tell you because I just did. But I want you to think. We need to think. Friends, listen, listen. There's no question God wants his children to live holy lives. And I'm a pastor and I've been here since the beginning, 1981, and I have preached this and this is in my blood just as much as anything in scripture. And anybody who comes to this church knows we believe in godly living for believers. But it's not automatic. You have to decide. You have to decide. Certainly the Lord starts working in our lives by many means to bring us to maturity. But it's not automatic. Now I want you to just stop right there and I want you to think about that long and hard. It is an honest question that is vital to the entire issue in life. Where do we lose the ability? At what point do we lose the ability to make choices and how we're going to live our lives? Could anybody please tell me when it takes place? You can't because it doesn't. We have the ability to make choices our entire lives. Not only that, but let's go back to McDonald's for a minute. If you lose your ability to make choices once you're saved, that means when you walk into McDonald's, you don't need a menu. You're programmed as to what you're going to eat that day. Anybody knows it's a happy meal. <laughs> Let me give you a third thing on this. The answer is simply that the ability to choose stays with us our entire lifetime from birth to the grave. That's how God made us as human Beings. The false teaching, though, of perseverance is a contradiction to this fact. Let me explain. Man has the ability to choose whether he will trust in Jesus Christ as his Savior or not. Now, most of us in this room would agree with that. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. God says we're sinners. God says we're guilty. We stand condemned before him. God says our good works cannot save us in any way. That's why Jesus came. He came to die and pay for our sins so we do not have to. He did that. He said it was finished, paid in full. He rose from the grave three days later, and he says if you will put your faith, your trust in him, he will give you as a free gift everlasting life. He'll never lose you. He'll never cast you out. That's what the Bible teaches. And you have a choice. Are you going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or not? He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, John 3, 18. So you have a choice. What's your choice? Well, I want to think about it, okay? For the time being, you have chosen not to believe, not to trust Christ the Savior. You are still condemned in the eyes of God. Don't die in that condition, friend. You'll be lost forever. God doesn't want that for you. Now, the Calvinists say that, did you know that the Calvinists say that man cannot choose to be saved? Did you know that? It's not your choice is what I'm saying. The Calvinists say this, no, out of the human race in time since Adam, since Adam, all the way to the end of time, God has unconditionally elected, chosen certain people out of the human race to go to heaven. And oh, we ought to thank the Lord if we're one of the elect. Well, the problem is with Calvinism, and according to the Calvinists, is you can't be sure you are one of the elect until you die in the faith. And we quoted, and I'll give you more quotes in the future on that. So you can't know you're saved. Well, that's contrary to the Bible, because it says if you believe in Christ, you can know that you have eternal life. Now, why is this so important. Well, they say you can't choose. That God chooses you. He picks certain ones. Now listen, if only a small percentage of humanity is going to heaven, and I think we would all agree with that who know the Bible, if everybody who's born either goes to heaven or hell, and God only chooses a little fraction of mankind to go to heaven, then what has He chosen for the rest of mankind? He's chosen hell for them. That is what he's done. Now I know people say, well, that's not a fair characterization of what Calvinism is. Well, sure it is. Why would God, if God so loved the world, would he not make it possible for the whole world to be saved? By the way, that is what the Bible teaches. Read first Timothy two, one through six. John three sixteen should settle it. Calvinism teaches, yeah, but the word world doesn't mean the world. It means the elect of the world. Don't you think God could have said that if that's what he meant? I mean, I don't think God has a problem communicating. I think we're the problem. Calvinism teaches man has no say on whether he's gonna be saved or not. They call that, by the way, irresistible grace, that God picks certain ones and his grace goes out and they cannot resist the call of grace and that's why they believe. But wait a minute, it goes further than that. They say you can't even believe Until you're regenerated. That means God gives you new life. God makes it possible for you. He gives you life to where you can make the choice to put your faith in Christ. I really didn't plan on going over all this, but you need to see how the dots connect. Friend, listen, that is so contrary to the Bible. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It doesn't say get saved and then believe. It's so wrong. They say you have to be regenerated or born again before you can believe, but the Bible says that you believe and then you are born again. John chapter three, why don't you turn there with me? And as you're turning there, let me say this, God loves you, friend. I don't care what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. God loves you and he wants to save you and he wants you to be his child. But you stand condemned because you're a sinner just like we all are. And yet Jesus went to the cross for you. You don't have to wonder whether you're one of the elect or not. All you need to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ the Savior. Anybody can be a child of God if they will trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the message of the Bible. You notice in John 3.3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now the conversation continues. Now you notice you have to be born again before you can see the kingdom. Well, how do you get that new birth? We'll jump down to verse 16. Jesus is still speaking. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, do you see the word whosoever? That's an interesting word in the Greek. It means whosoever that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you believe in him, you should not perish, but you have everlasting life. Wait a minute, everlasting life, life. You know what that is? That's eternal life in contrast to being dead. So the way you get life, the way you get regenerated, the way you get born again is by believing or trusting in Jesus Christ, the Savior. God doesn't just select new life and then you believe. No, you believe to get the life. That's the biblical order. Let me show you another one, Acts chapter 16. In verse 30, you know the story. Paul and Silas are in jail. Here's the story of the Philippian jailer. They're in bonds and an earthquake comes and, and their chains fall off and the doors open. And it's a crisis situation for this Philippian jailer because according to Roman law, if a soldier, if a guard let his captives free, it was death for him. So he's concerned with a capital C. But he's been listening because they've been singing and they've been encouraging one another in the word of God. And he comes to them and in Acts 16.30, he he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Would we agree that he wasn't saved yet? He wasn't saved yet. He didn't say, you know what, I'm regenerated. Now what? And then they say, believe. No, he says, what must I do to be saved? He wasn't saved yet. And what did they say? And they said, well, just pray that you're one of the elect and maybe if God chose you, you'll make it. No, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe and you'll be saved. See, you're not saved and then you believe. You believe and then you're saved. That's what the Bible teaches. Let's move on. The false teaching of the perseverance cannot be true for we as Christians are specifically commanded in the word of God. Now listen carefully. We as Christians are commanded to do many things. We are told that we are to yield. We are to present. We are to forsake. We are to deny. We are to commit. We are to reject we are to flee, we are to put off, we are to put on, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as well as we are told we should persevere. Not to be saved, not to make it, but to successfully live a Christian life. Ah, there's the difference. Let's look at some examples. Turn you're in Acts, turn over to your right to the next book, Romans chapter one. Very, very important. Now I want you to be thinking about this as we go through. What we are covering is incredibly important to this issue. And let me say this, if this is overwhelming to anybody or confusing to anybody, here's the point today. You have the ability to make choices. God created you that way. And you need to make the right choices, period. But you know, somewhere between the beginning of this and what I just said, people get lost along the way. And I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about people who are dealing with theology today and people all over the place who are confused about the issue of do you still have choice once you are a Christian? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. Now, Paul is writing to believers in Romans chapter one. You might say, how do you know that? Well, it says in verse seven, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now the word to be, we know that's italicized in the original. Here on the screen, it's bracketed because, well, it should be bracketed. Anyways, it's not in the originals. It was added for clarification from the uh, KJV translators. But to be is not there. Literally, it's to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that God, through Paul, calls them saints. Saints is a term for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ the Savior, they're saved people. He's writing to saved people. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very important. So who's he writing to? He's writing to save people. People. The same phrase is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writing to the Corinthian saints. I want you to see it. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, he's writing to save people, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be or called saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and cases both in Romans and Corinthians and many other places by the way Paul is writing to believers he is dealing with those people who have been born again because if you're a believer you've been born again they are saints they're sanctified ones they're called out of the world they have been set apart by God and for God's purpose they have been forgiven they have been justified through the blood of Jesus Christ they have been sanctified as we just read. And not only that, Romans 8 tells us they've even already in God's eyes been glorified. What does Paul say to these people? Well, let's go back to Romans. Romans chapter six. Christians, please, dear friend, please follow carefully. This is so important. Once you see it, it'll clear up so much about the Christian life, even about your own Christian life. Choice is still there. Romans chapter 6, Paul says to these believers, verse 12, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members, your body parts, as instruments of righteousness unto God." Paul exhorts the Roman believers not to let sin rule, that's what the word reign means, rule in your body. This would be exactly the same concept as a king ruling over the subjects in a kingdom. That's what the word reign means here. The doctrine of perseverance, however, says that this will not happen to you for any length of time if you are truly saved. Now, I got a question for you. Why would Paul say don't let it happen if it wasn't possible for it to happen? And raining brings with it the whole idea of something that is ongoing. Because you don't reign for one second reigning has to do with a period of time. And of course the time is not given here. But the point is this, Paul says to these people who are born again, who are saints, listen, you're still a sinner. You still have the capacity to sin. However, don't let sin reign in your life. Now, Why would Paul tell them what not to do and what to do if it was something that they would automatically respond to in the proper way once they were saved? Why would he tell them to do it? Yet that's what you have today. Well, if you're really saved, you're going to live this way. If you're really saved, you're going to live that way. If you're really saved, you won't do that. If you're really saved, you'll do this. Well, then why is he telling them what not to do and what to do if they can't do those things? The truth of it is they can. They shouldn't do wrong, but they can. That's why he says, don't let sin reign in your body. He's talking to Christians. Well, if it was automatic that it wouldn't happen, then why is he telling them don't let it happen? How many of you get this? Do you get it? I hope you get it. Listen, (laughs) If perseverance of the saints is true, in other words, if you're saved, you're going to live a faithful life automatically. If perseverance of the saints is true, don't you think the Bible could be a whole lot thinner? You'd only need a couple pages. Explain the gospel. Okay, I trusted Christ. I am a godly Christian. Okay, I live my life for Christ. What about sin? No, no, no. I don't hardly ever do that because I'm righteous hardly ever do that. That's such a contradiction. If you're righteous, you're not going to do it at all, anything wrong. The truth of it is, yeah, we have a positional righteousness in Christ, but folks, we're still sinners. See, the scripture admonishes us. Uh, By the way, you're in Romans. Look at chapter six again, Romans six, look at verse 16. It says, now he's writing to Christians now, remember, about their life now that they're saved. Romans one through five has to do with how to be saved chapter 6 is a turning point in Romans. Verse 16, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are to whom ye obey. Look at this. Whether of sin unto death, he's saying you can do that, or of obedience unto righteousness. What is that? You know, you could write across that. Don't do it. But you could write across it in your Bible. Choice. Choice. You're either going to serve your flesh or you're going to serve the Lord. It's a choice for Christians. It's not automatic. The language could not be clear in verse 16 that a choice is to be made. Now, this is no small issue. If obedience is automatically going to be the fruit of your salvation, then why does God have to tell us to yield to him and abstain from sin? It's because it's not automatic. It's because you do have choice. Now, let me get practical on this if I haven't already been. You know, we get caught up in this false stuff. Well, I don't, but some people do. And I don't mean that in a proud way. But see, you got to understand this truth. Here's where we go with this. Well, you know what? Someone said, said, they said they trusted Christ. And you know, they were were pretty excited about it at the beginning, but you know what? I haven't seen them in church in two months. You know what? I don't think they're saved. Wait a minute. Don't they have a choice whether they're going to come to church or not? Do they? Yes. Does that prove or not prove that they're saved? Let me answer that for you. The writer to the Hebrews who was writing to save Jews who were under persecution, he said to those saved Jews, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. Why would he tell them that if it wasn't possible for them as believers to forsake the assembling? Do we see it? You could take this in every situation you can imagine, and it's the exact same thing, and it's the exact same answer. You have a choice. However, we as believers ought to be making the right choices. But the possibility or the capacity to choose is in fact there. Romans chapter 6, we see that in verse 16. Go to chapter 12 of Romans The Apostle Paul, after expounding on the glorious truths of the gospel and God's plan of salvation and how it all works for mankind in Romans chapter 1, through Romans chapter 11, urges the Roman believers in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, pastor, don't you believe those two verses? Amen, I love those verses. I preach them all the time. But you see, folks, he's writing this to believers, and if it was automatic that they would present their bodies a living sacrifice, holy unto God, be not conformed to this world, if that was automatic, if they were saved, then why would he have to tell them to do it? He's telling them to do it because it's not automatic, and they need to be challenged as believers to make the right choices. By the way, nowhere in this chapter, Romans 12, does Paul say that if they didn't do this, they would go to hell. Nor does he say that if they didn't do it, they should doubt whether they're saved or not. He recognized them as saints in chapter one. They're brethren. And then he tells them not to be conformed to this world. Again, why tell them to not conform to the world if they automatically will not conform to the world if they're believers? You know, we have caused so much heartache and so, so undermining of the salvation of other people by, by teaching on this in a false way. Pastor, don't you believe there are Christians who are, who are living in a backslidden state? Absolutely I do. There's lots of them. What do you do with that? I challenge them as Christians to fall in love with the Lord and do what they ought to do. If I talk to them about their salvation and and they tell me they've trusted Christ the Savior, who am I to say they haven't? Can I read the heart? Only God can read the heart. Well, I don't believe they are. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Are you responsible? No, you're not. They've heard the truth. They know the truth. We can give them the truth. It's up to them to decide whether they're gonna trust Jesus Christ or not. Once they're saved, it's up to them to decide whether they will or how much they're gonna live for Christ. See, it is time that professing believers face this issue with honesty and quit repeating the errors of past tradition and false theology on this. Folks, we need to get our theology from the Bible and the Bible alone. Even pastors can be wrong on things, including this one. But this is an absolute certainty what I'm sharing with you today. One more passage, Ephesians chapter four. Turn there with me. In Ephesians 4, we have no less than 22 admonitions given to believers, namely the saints at Ephesus. How do you know they're believers? Chapter 1 says so. In other words, these are admonitions directed toward Christians. So they're saved people. That means they had eternal life. That means they have a home reserved for them in heaven. That means they're children of God. They're eternally secure in Christ. They've got it. And by the way, Jesus recognizes them as saved in Revelation chapter two, the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 4 and verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye, Ephesian saints, you believers, henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. These Christians were no longer to walk like they were lost. Now, when we say walk, we're not talking about the way your feet go. Okay, we're talking about your lifestyle. We as Christians, once we're saved, yes, our lives should change, but that's a choice. That ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over into lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That's the way you were before you were saved you're saints now, verse 20, but you've not so learned with Christ. Jesus, you didn't get that carnal, wicked, sinful lifestyle from the Lord. He's given you another way to live. And he's admonishing them to choose that, verse 21. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Here you go that you put off concerning the former conversation or manner of life, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Wait a minute, let's stop just there. Question, why would he tell them to live differently if it was automatic, if they were saved, they were automatically gonna live differently? Why would he tell them to do it? He wouldn't need to do it. It was automatic, it'd be automatic. But it's not automatic that you put off the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. Here we go again. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Make that right choice, believing saints. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Now why would he tell them not to lie if they couldn't lie? For we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Don't you think it's amazing today the amount of gossip and backbiting and sinful talking in the body of Christ that's going on between believers today? It is amazing. It is one of the chief reasons for church splits and why people leave churches today. And I'm talking about churches that are made up of believers. See, we'll we'll have our list, folks. Some churches anyway, they have their list of the 10 worst sins Christians can commit. And those are the ones and boy, they take that and they put that, you might say on a bat, and they go around and they say you're doing that, bam, you're not saved. You're doing that, bam, you're not saved because you're on the list. Yeah, but I wonder how many of those same Christians with the bat are gossiping to everybody they know about how sinful those other people are. That's just as much of a sin. They're practicing sin. Are they not saved? Now I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm just saying, well, we'll be honest with this. But that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Look at that. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He sealed you for the rest of your saved forever don't grieve him. Do you see it in one verse? We see our eternal security and yet at the same time there is the command, the admonition not to live in sin and grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Again, one more time. Listen. Listen. Why would he tell them to do and not do these 22 things listed in the passage I just read if it was automatic that they would live a godly life if they're saved? It's not automatic. It's a choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Friend, listen, if you have been looking at your performance and the way you live as the basis of whether you're saved or not, there's a very good chance you are not saved. You're not saved because you're looking at your performance and that is your good works or lack thereof. The only way you go to heaven is by putting your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior. We are helplessly lost. We are all sinners. We are under condemnation. And the only way you can get out from under that is putting your trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross and he will give you eternal life. Ephesians two eight nine 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, It is the gift of God, it is not of works, lest any man should boast. Trust Christ today, would you? Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening, and would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much and God bless you.